You're listening to Welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And on this episode, we're bringing you an author chat with Catherine Ma, the author of The Chinese Groove, which is now available in bookstores everywhere. Um, the Chinese Groove is a story about an 18-year-old Chinese man named Shelley, um, who travels to America in search of his American dream, but also to escape his terrible, terrible family uh, who look down on him because he is part of a not prominent branch of his family and finds that his American dream might need a little bit of work to reach. Um, it is that is a very basic synopsis, but this story is it covers a lot, Rita. Um, yeah, it does. Um, I mean, like just from the title. Like, for the people who don't know anything about this book, it could be like, oh, it's just like, you know, like Chinese ballroom dancing. <laughs> but there, there is – the book goes deep into what we call the Chinese groove on, like, the unspoken uh, rules in dealing with uh, etiquette with your countrymen. And, yeah, like, I thought it was very fascinating. And it was actually a very funny tale, despite uh, some of the strife that the main character goes through. Yeah, I mean, it's a story about an immigrant and his struggles and hardships that he faces to to make it in America. But the immigrant in question here is an unbridled optimist. So always seeing the good in everything, always seeing the opportunity, always, um, you know, trying to find his next... um, I wouldn't say not grift, but his next like opportunity. And I thought it was a really fun way to portray um, this type of story that, um, you know, as avid readers of Asian American literature, is a story that we're, we're quite familiar with. Yeah, maybe a little too familiar with. <laughs> but yeah, we had a great chat with Catherine uh, about her background as a lawyer before becoming a novelist. Um, we talked about her inspirations and talked a little bit about, you know, our own, the way that the Chinese groove manifests in our own lives as well. So um, I hope you enjoy our conversation with Catherine Ma. And we're here with Catherine Ma, the author of The Year She Left Us and the most recently released novel, The Chinese Groove. Welcome to the podcast, Catherine. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Um, so we always love to start our author chats with learning more about, you know, our authors, how you started writing, how you became an author. So can you walk us through, I guess, your personal journey to becoming a, a novelist? It's a long and winding path, <laughs> and I think I heard that, that you're a late bloomer in in terms of like joining uh, writing. Yeah, very late bloomer, and and I think it it will be familiar to to, to many of your listeners that um, sometimes it's it's hard to start on that on that path as a second generation uh, American. I I I'm reading right now "Stay True" by Hua Xu, which is a marvelous book, and he has a I think he encapsulates it well when he says the first generation thinks about survival, the ones that follow tell the stories. And that seems to be true in my case. So I, um, 
I I'm, I was that kid who always loved reading. You know, I always had my nose in a book, but I didn't really envision a life for myself as a writer. I I, I like to read. I like to talk. I didn't know what to do with those two passions. And eventually I became a lawyer and I practiced law for a number of years in, in San Francisco. And I, I enjoyed practicing law. I particularly really enjoyed the collaborative aspects of it, you know, being part of a law firm and having colleagues and trying to solve problems together. But uh, I always wondered, can I do the thing that brings me so much pleasure? You know, I always was drawn to the novel as a genre, and I always wondered whether or not I could learn how to do that myself. So eventually I did leave my law career and begin to write. But I was stubborn about it. I I, I didn't go to school for it, which... Um, I think has its advantages and disadvantages. But at that point, I was older. I already had advanced degrees. I thought, I just can't face any more school, any more classroom time. So I, I really um, practiced on my own. I just did a lot of reading. I did a lot of writing. I practiced on my own. And, you know, over time, I learned a lot um, through reading the greats. I learned a lot about how to put together a story, how to put together a novel, and I began to write. I feel like we've had a couple of authors on the show um, who were lawyers before they became writers. I feel like that profession really gives them the discipline to wake up every day and to, you know, be very dedicated to their projects. I think there's something true in what you say, um, but I also think there's something innate in... in um, in people who are drawn to the law that also perhaps makes them suited to writing. We, we, we love stories. I mean, being, being a lawyer is in part about understanding your client's story and then being able to communicate it to a jury or a judge or to your opponent. Um, and we love language. I mean, I, as a lawyer, I, I loved, I loved language. I, I love the use of language to communicate a point to try to, establish a point of view. So it's not it's not that surprising to me that other writers have come out of the profession of the law. Yeah. I feel like a lot of as you mentioned your story hits a lot of common notes with children of immigrants, second generation, Asian Americans upbringing where we're told to focus all of our energies to achieve this one thing or these few things but we secretly want to do something creative, something artistic, something that, you know, fills us with, I guess, fulfillment um, other than having money and having stability. And I guess I'm curious because, you know, there, there are so many examples now of young, the younger generation of Asian Americans being able to pursue those passions right from the start. And I love that for them. But, you know, for those of us who are or do have to make that pivot, um, can you walk us through when you decided to pursue creative writing? How did you get from there, from deciding to pursue something that you're passionate about to getting published, right? What was that journey like for you? Yeah, it took me a long time and it, it, it was humbling. It was a humbling experience. I mean, for one thing, because I was a litigator, I was very used to writing and writing quickly and writing was always came pretty easily to me. So I thought, oh, how hard could this be? <laughs> it turns out it's very hard. <laughs> turns out it's very hard. And maybe in some ways having practiced law and, and 
approached uh, life as a lawyer that kind of got in a way, in in my way. I had to kind of unlearn that kind of writing. Um, But as I said, I, I practiced. Now, one thing I did for myself, this was a gift to myself. I got a small office outside my home. And because that's the one thing I did know how to do. I did know how to leave the house in the morning. <laughs> I knew how to take a shower, put on some clothes and leave the house in the morning and go to an office. So I and because I had practiced law for, for, for a number of years, I had the means to be able to get a little space of my own away from the family. I had children by then. And I knew that if I stayed at home, it, I would be doing the laundry. Um, and so I went and I got a little office and I just, as I said, I just practiced. I began mostly with writing short stories and I began sending them out. And, um, eventually I had enough to, to, to put together. I felt that I had a collection and I submitted it to various contests and I, I didn't win at first, but I was getting some good feedback. Like maybe I'd be a semi-finalist or finalist and I just kept working at it and then finally my first collection of short stories was published by the University of Iowa Press as winner of the Iowa Short Fiction Award which made an enormous difference to me in terms of my self-confidence and my belief that yes I can I can go on to do it but to be honest it took 10 years to write those 10 stories um, and at times it felt daunting, but at the same time, because I had that had the business world experience, I knew that ten years is an appropriate apprenticeship. I mean, it took me ten years to become a pretty good lawyer. It takes a long time to do anything well, I think, and you know you have to have that period of of apprenticeship. Hopefully, you have some mentors. I had one teacher in particular who was really a, a wonderful inspiration to me. I didn't, as I said, I did not go to graduate school for creative writing, but I did take some classes here and there. I did some summer workshops and I had a teacher whose name is Lynn Freed, who is a marvelous writer and a very stringent, demanding teacher. <laughs> and she raised the bar high and I reached for it. And that made it big difference to me as well. Eventually, we could talk about this if you'd like. Eventually, I found that it was helpful to be in a writing group. I didn't do that at first. Um, and I think there was some value in waiting. But eventually, I formed a writing group and that was helpful too. Yeah, I'm guessing that you had some novels in the drawer because um, you didn't go to an MFA program. And like you said, you had to practice. I'm guessing that this is probably your, I guess, fourth manuscript or fifth manuscript. Really, you've been rooting around in the drawers of my house, haven't you? You're absolutely <laughs> right. You're absolutely right. I, I wrote at the same time that I was working on that collection of stories, I wrote a novel. I think of it as my teething novel or, or my substitute MFA degree. I just wanted to see if I could do it. You know, did could I put together a novel? So I wrote that novel and I did not try to have that one published. I set that one aside. Just I'm proud of that book and it taught me a lot, but I just decided, no, that's 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 not where I want to try to begin my efforts to try to get a novel published. Then I wrote a second novel, 
And that one did not sell. And um, then I won the Iowa Short Fiction Award. The first book came out, The Collection of Stories. And um, my agent at the time, I told her, uh, I, I had a new agent by then, and I told her that I had this novel in a drawer that hadn't been picked up the first time we submitted it. And she asked me the most interesting, helpful question. She said, is that the novel that you want to follow the short stories? And I thought, oh, no, it's not. It's not. I, I can write a better novel. I know I have more confidence in myself. And I also have a, a better sense now of what my themes are, what obsesses me. What do I want to write about as a novelist? So, no, I didn't. I didn't go back to that second manuscript in the drawer that Rira's been rooting around. In. <laughs> I I thought I can write a better novel, and then I wrote the year she left us, another book that I'm I'm very proud of, and that was the what at, at that point they were there. It was hilarious to me that that they called me a debut novelist because by that point I was. I was getting on in years. <laughs> I had three three children well on their way. But that was, in fact, the first novel that was published, followed then by this new book, The Chinese Groove. Yeah, let's talk about your newest book, uh, The Chinese Groove. Can you uh, kind of give us the short elevator pitch for our listeners who um, are about to read this book or want to learn more about it? My protagonist is an 18-year-old man whose nickname, his Western nickname is Shelley. He is born into the despised branch of his family in Yunnan, China. And Shelley has a dream instilled in him by his mother that he will leave his hometown and go to America and make his way in the world. Uh, and he, As part of that dream, he sees himself as being able to step into a life that's already sort of waiting for him, that's going to welcome him with open arms because he has relatives in San Francisco and he believes those relatives to be rich and successful and very open to having him there. So he does leave his home and he comes to San Francisco and it all is not uh, what he expected. So it's a book about his adventures, his um, disappointments and his uh his journey to becoming a person who understands what life has to offer and what you have to make for yourself. Yeah. Um, it was really cool to read a story about the immigrant experience from the perspective of the immigrant. And uh, I'm wondering, um, how did you research the voice of your main character, Shelley? Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you asked that because the voice is so important to the book. Um, it, Shelley speaks directly to the reader. He's very conscious that he's telling a story, and he has a a highly energetic, imaginative voice. Um, he's an optimistic young man. He's full of energy, buoyancy, and hope. He's unrealistic at times. He can be naive, although he warns us, "Don't think I'm a fool." And we see in which ways that plays out. So the voice of Shelley came to me very easily. Um, the book didn't necessarily come easily. I had to work a lot, especially on the when I began writing the beginning. Of course, the beginnings of novels always change a lot as you're writing them because you learn what is the story that you want to tell and you'll go back many times and rewrite the beginning. 
but the voice was there, the tone of his voice, the humor. I mean, he just made me laugh. I just enjoyed writing him so much. Sometimes he got a little carried away with me. <laughs> I got a little carried away with him. And I had to rein him in a bit. Um, and that's what an editor is for. I had a wonderful editor at Counterpoint Press. His name is Dan Lopez. And Dan uh, occasionally uh, brought to my attention passages where it got a little too um, too fanciful and, and brought me back to earth. But the voice of Shelley really just came out of my own imagining of the life of a young man. I wanted to write somebody very optimistic and buoyant. Um, I don't think we see those characters very often in fiction. Sometimes we'll see a a, a funny and and um, optimistic character in a Dickens novel, but they tend to be fools. I mean, Dickens sort of pokes fun at them, and um, I, I I I didn't. Although this book has a mildly satiric tone, I was not holding Shelley up in any way for ridicule. I really was investing um, the book with Shelley's optimism. Yeah, we've read a lot of immigrant stories on this podcast, on this book club, and a lot of them do tend to dwell on the hardships and the the struggle of being an immigrant in America. And it was really a little refreshing to see like a story about, it's still about hardship, still about struggle, but with a main character that could see, you know, the silver lining and everything, his boundless optimism and doesn't let the setbacks keep him down. Because I think, you know, some might see him as naive, but I'm sure a lot of immigrants who came to America with those dreams, they probably had to have optimism in order to survive here, right? Yeah, no question that it is very difficult to survive. Uh, my parents uh, emigrated from different areas of China uh, shortly after World War II, and no question, it was difficult. I mean, they, they lived through very insecure times. They were basically living in exile from their home country. In my father's case, he never got to see his parents and siblings again, which is a, an unimaginable tragedy to me. Um, but Shelley is born as someone with an optimistic temperament and also I feel that he has to believe in himself because there's no one else to believe in him. He he says to us early in the book, I was born into the despised branch of the family. He descends from a branch of the family that's looked down upon by the members of his large extended family in Yunnan. And his father, although he loves Shelley and they're close, his father is thwarted in his life. Shelley's mother has died when Shelley is a very young boy. And his father has never gotten over that grief. So he's not really there for Shelley either. So it's up to Shelley. Like he, he, he realizes deep down, I'm the only one in my corner, really. So I have to be my own um, coach, my own champion, my own teacher, my own mentor. And that's what he sets out to become. Yeah, I mean, Shelley reminds me a lot of uh, Wayman Wong from the movie Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Uh, Wayman is very optimistic to a point where you're like, don't you know that the world is not as kind as you think it is? But uh, in the movie, he's like, optimism is a choice. It is a coping mechanism. And I feel like so many immigrant 
immigration stories that we see in uh, literary novels, they focus on the tragedy. And I thought it was really refreshing to uh, read Shelley's voice, especially since he speaks in such like short, affirmed sentences that is like just enthused with optimism. And uh, I just love the fact that uh, the book is a retrospective voice. It's, um, you know, he's telling the story in the future, but not so much in the future that he's like an old man. There's still um, that level of optimism. Um, how did you decide on, I guess, breaking the fourth wall for this novel? Like what made you want to make that choice? Storytelling is a theme that runs throughout the book. There's a fable uh, that Shelley refers to and eventually tells in the book uh, called The Legend of the Peach Blossom Forest, which is a famous Chinese legend. And uh, I use it as an analogy uh, about our dreams for a Shangri-La, a utopian community in which we might find ourselves and, and be able to thrive and live in harmony with people different from us. And in using storytelling as a theme that runs throughout the book, I decided that Shelley himself, during the course of the book, would become a storyteller. His father tells stories. His mother told him stories when he was young. And Shelley begins to gain confidence as a storyteller. So I, you're absolutely right that um, he is a retrospective narrator to a point because I wanted to give him a little emotional distance for what he's gone through during that this critical year it, when he's 18 and 19 years old. But I didn't want to bring him all the way to the end of his life where he's looking back and now he's full of wisdom and gravitas. And just like you said, I wanted to I wanted to give him a little perspective, but not filter the whole story through the mind of a of a much older man. So Using those two techniques, both something of emotion, some part of emotional distance, but also speaking directly to the reader, those are two ways in which I play with how storytellers communicate to us. I don't use that breaking the fourth wall too often. I think that can lift a reader out of that fictional dream where you want them to stay. You know, we want a a reader to enter into a book, to fall into the book early in the early in their reading, and then to stay in that current. So, I'll do it once in a while, and you know, it's a comical novel at some level. So Shelley does tweak the reader from time to time. There's one scene uh, where he's at a Lunar New Year banquet, and he is telling us about some characters that have been introduced earlier in the book. And he's mentioned these characters. We've seen these characters in a scene. And now he's returned and he's telling us about these other characters. And he says, oh, one of those characters is Chinese-American. I forgot to tell you earlier. And then he sort of goes into a little, a little uh, direct address to the reader about how, what do we what do we as readers assume when we're reading a book or hearing a story about the race of those characters? How does our mind take us? What biases do we as readers bring to the telling? So those are the mo that's an example of a kind of moment where Shelley reaches directly out to the reader. 
Yeah, I thought it was a very effective technique. And I thought it was very funny as well. That part that you uh, just mentioned where he's like, oh, by the way, uh, Kate is Chinese American. Um, but you you're, you set your book in Outer Sunsets and it is a very diverse neighborhood. And I'm just curious as to why you decided to set your quote unquote Shangri-La in Outer Sunsets. Most San Franciscans would not consider the neighborhood of the Outer Sunset District much of a Shangri-La, that's true. It's got very uniform housing. It's got a lot of fog. It's notoriously wet and cold and damp and bleak in the summertime because it's very close to the ocean. For me, the Outer Sunset has a special place in my heart because it evokes for me um, the upbringing that I had. My parents first lived in Ohio. That's where they met. And then we lived in Pennsylvania. And when I was born, when they first brought me home from the hospital, they brought me home to Levittown, Pennsylvania. And Levittown was a an area uh, that had very affordable housing, not very interesting housing, but it was opportunity for working class families, for immigrant families, for middle class families to to first get a foothold. And that's where my parents lived when, when I was born. Eventually, we lived in other suburbs of Philly. But um, that to, that's the kind of history the Outer Sunset has in San Francisco. Like it was, there were developers who came in in the 20s, 30s, and 40s and built a lot of very similar housing, row after row after row of homes that look very similar and are very modest in size and um, were places where working class and middle class families could could find affordable housing. Now, in San Francisco, same as in the Levittowns of the East Coast, in the early years, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, there were restrictive covenants that kept out immigrants, that kept out African-Americans that kept out Jews, but eventually the laws changed and people were allowed to establish a foothold. When Shelley first arrives at his uncle and auntie's house in the outer sunset in San Francisco, he's, he's really flummoxed. He was like, wait a minute, I thought these people were rich <laughs> and that they owned this huge department store on the best corner of San Francisco. And instead he finds out they live in a very modest, small home. And his grand dream that they're going to set him up with uh, housing and a job all falls to pieces really quickly. After two weeks, they boot him out and then he has to figure out where he's going to go from there. I feel like those modest homes these days are currently can, are probably I mean, like those the are price palaces of at this yeah. point, <laughs> like with how uh, unaffordable housing is and especially for immigrants, especially for uh Chinese immigrants, because I feel like they their first stop is Chinatown. Like they need that community there. And once they're able to save up and, you know, have the courage to leave, that's, you know, that's their new promised land. And um, I just thought it was really funny when Shelley arrived and he was like, this this is it. Like, like, where's my grand bedroom? Why do I have to sleep on the couch? And I was just like, 
that Chinese groove is, <laughs> it's not what it seems to be for, for him. That's right. Shelley has this, like I said, he loves wordplay and he's got a very active imagination and he, he's, he's, he's convinced himself that there's this thing that he calls the Chinese groove that's going to be a kind of safety net for him. Like he thinks, okay, I'm going, I don't know anybody, I don't have any prospects, I haven't got any money, but I have a deep cultural connection and ancestral bond with other Chinese people who are in the greater diaspora and they're going to give me a, a leg up. And it sort of works for him, but it sort of doesn't because he puts a lot of faith in that and it, it fails him at times. And, you know, the, t- the, t- the term is meant somewhat satirically in the book, but I think also uh, in life there is some truth, or at least we ask the book asks the questions: Is there a kind of bond, a kind of connection among people of different communities, uh, of, of among people of the same origin, who might live in very different communities and might be living through very different experiences, who see each other? I mean, at least are is Shelley visible to some? population where he's going uh, in a way that he can put some faith in. Yeah, I mean, the concept of the Chinese groove was really interesting for for me to read about because it's something that as like a member of the Chinese diaspora, I was always aware of. And it's kind of fun to see someone put a name to it, like the little forms of social etiquette you do with each other, with elders, like the, the airs you put on of like, fake humbleness or like you know the way you have to refuse something when you actually really want it Um, (laughs) yeah right right (laughs) what was your what what has been your own personal experiences with the groove and how did that like feed into your portrayal of it in your book i think that there have been times when i felt an unspoken connection to strangers who are in the chinese american community or people in the chinese diaspora and it's it's a very affirming feeling to feel seen. But at the same time, sometimes it feels illusory. And, you know, you have to ask yourself, who can I rely on? Is it only my family who I ultimately can rely on and my friends and people I know? Or is there some larger connection that is going to hold me in their embrace? Um, and I, th- I think it's an amorphous idea and it's an amorphous um, set of feelings that I have around it. I, I, the book doesn't really try to answer that, but it does ask the question. Uh, I will say that I, I was remembering the other day, kind of laughing to myself, that an early trip I took to China uh, with a friend, um, I want to say it was in the late 90s. So things were opened up, but they are not as they are now. And China is a fully globalized nation and the cities are, you know, as sophisticated and globalized as they come. Um, We were staying in an area that had some Western style hotels and I'd walk the streets every day and I felt so thrilled to be there because, you know, you as a Chinese person, when you're in an Asian city, you melt into the crowd in a way that isn't so easy to do in the United States. I mean, we can go into Asian heavy 
neighborhoods and melt into the crowd. But that that's not sort of just walking, you know, that that's not necessary. That's something you have to access intentionally, or it is for me, because I did not grow up in a in an Asian neighborhood. I grew up more in a white suburbs. Um, so I was walking around and I was feeling so excited to be there and to feel like, oh, I'm just part of this swirling river of people. Um, and then my friend and I went to a public park and it was a Sunday morning. It was a beautiful morning in the park and hundreds of people were streaming in families, you know, children, older people practicing their Tai Chi. And as she and I, two American Chinese, walked through the gates. There was an old lady sitting on a chair near the front of the park, and she called out to us in Chinese, you two, you have to pay. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I guess I guess this, the Chinese groove is not really holding me up right now. <laughs> Somehow she spied us as outsiders. Oh, they can right? notice right away. Like right away. Lady dressed right and, away. and she just, charged yeah. us. She charged us to enter into that park, whereas all the people around us had just simply walked in. So, you know, Shelley, Shelley has some of those similar experiences where he, he misreads a situation and it gets him into some trouble. Yeah. I feel like yeah. the way that I've seen it manifest most in my life is when I go out to eat, especially like Asian food, like Chinese food with other Asian people. And we all kind of understand the the unspoken etiquette of like things like paying for the bill. Like, okay, we're not going to fight for the bill, right? Or things like, oh, let's not eat the last piece of dumpling on this dim sum plate. Right? And it's a kind of comfort, isn't it? It feels, it feels like a kind of, um, I don't know, I think it produces a sort of relaxation in the body. Uh, we walk around with so much stress in our bodies as immigrants or as the children of immigrants. We may not be aware of that kind of tension that we hold, um, but we I think we do. And there's something about being in the company of what Shelley calls his countrymen that helps one feel a little more seen, a little more supported. But you know, as I said, Shelley finds that for him, it has its limits. Yeah. I mean, the groove is not only like the social etiquette, but also like, like you mentioned, the informal, like social safety net for Shelley and other Chinese immigrants. Um, I'm wondering how much, did you do any research into ways that, into these ways that the Chinese groove manifests, like things like the chef that Shelley works for that hooks them up with group housing or like the, the the people that he interacts who kind of show him not unconditional kindness, but kindness and support for someone who they, they can see needs help. I did do a, 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 a quite a bit of research for the book on different in different areas. And one of the things, um, getting back to the question that, that you were talking about, Rira, one of the things that I address in the book are different forms of Migration. So we have Shelley's transnational immigration, but we also have this migration that happens within a city where maybe a population has started out in its neighborhood, like a, a Chinatown, where, as you said, that's, well, first of all, that's where there's economic opportunity for many mm -hmm. migrants, but also that's where they find support 
um, in, in terms of language and housing and, you know, a community that sees them and supports them. But then in the case of the book, a family migrates, leaves Chinatown and comes to the outer sunset. And there was a wonderful exhibit um, put on by the Chinese Historical Society of America uh, about the migration of San Francisco Chinese from Chinatown to the Outer Sunset. The exhibit was called, very simply, Chinese in the Sunset. And I went to the exhibit multiple times and I met some people there who were um, of that community. And I did some oral histories. I interviewed people. I collected some information about the journeys that their parents made um, from Chinatown to the Outer Sunset. And it's not just a physical journey, right? And it's only a couple of miles, but it's a huge emotional journey and a big economic journey too for, for some people, for some families. And that was part of the research that I did. Yeah, I, I'm not Chinese, I'm Korean, but we do have our own word for the groove. It's called chung. And it's really hard to describe in um, in English because I don't think it's really, I don't think you could really translate it. Uh, but you feel chung when you see another countryman, like we mentioned, in a place where, you know, you are not among your people, you're a, you're a minority and you rely on kindness. But also chung can be formed outside of race. It could just be two people who, you know, bond over just like a small experience together. And you have characters who, you know, they don't have good relationships with their blood family, but they have a very strong relationship with the people in their community. So I want to ask you, like, how did you go about exploring the differences between blood ties and, I guess, found family? That is a, a, an important part of the book to me, that um, there are the families that we're born into and then the families that we make for ourselves. And there are a number of characters in the book um, who have conflicts within their blood families and have to go out and seek the support and love in, in a different kind of family that they create for themselves. Um, I think that's, it's probably uh, something that has happened all through the ages, but we see it more now because we talk about it more. We acknowledge it. We, um, we uh, understand the value of a, of an intentional community and a, and, and a, a self-created family. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, love and hope that comes out of those kinds of experiences, those kinds of bonds. Um, and one of the things the book does is try to present a, a different scenarios. You know, nobody, it's not suggesting that there's one right way to be in family or to be in community, but we look at, uh, a different, a variety of characters who are landing in different ways, and the same is true with this whole idea of housing and home. You you were talking about the crazy <laughs> real estate prices in San Francisco. That's true in a lot of cities, but yeah, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. These you know the the market rate uh, for housing uh, is 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 so 
crazy now that the kinds of homes that working class families, middle class families could buy in San Francisco 70 years ago, those aren't available anymore. Um, but one of the things the book does is look at the notion of what is home, what is housing, what is family, what is community. I, I, I like, I'm interested in this word that you were telling, this idea that you're talking about in, in Korean, um, because I do think that this idea of bonds that are unspoken, that we feel, even though we might not be able to precisely articulate what it is, I think that exists in many different ways. Uh, it could be an ethnic bond. It could be a racial bond. It could be geographic. It could be class. You know, it, 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 it's there and it's somewhat amorphous, but I think when we feel it, we know it. Yeah, it's a sense of camaraderie. And um, I, I've noticed that there were a lot of Jewish uh, customs and terms in your book. And I was really surprised that there was a lot of like shared uh, sense of like community, both with like Chinese Americans and Jewish Americans. Um, I'm I'm not sure if you're you're Jewish as well, or uh, if you did research into that. The um, we were talking earlier about the notion of a Shangri La or a sort of peach blossom land, a utopia. And one of the things I play with in the book um, is the multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-faith aspect of a city like San Francisco, where so many people of so many different backgrounds live side by side. Do they live harmoniously? How do they, how do they uh, communicate with each other? Um, and the Jewish community is one that I, one that I look at. I do have a, a, a some familiarity with it. My husband is Jewish. We've raised our children um, in the Jewish faith. I am myself am Quaker. Uh, we have observed all sorts of different uh, religious and 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 cultural um, traditions in our family. Um, I think there is a there. Often people comment on a kind of natural affinity between Asian families and Jewish families, something about the reverence for knowledge and education, something about the um, importance of the family unit. Um, perhaps there's some connection there. Um, plus, Shelley loves language, as I said, and Yiddish is a pretty fabulous language. <laughs> he likes learning some of those terms and throwing them around. Uh, we talked about you talked about research. One of the pleasures of researching this book was getting in the car with my husband and driving all over LA County looking for a place where I could locate a kibbutz. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing I really loved about this book is, you know, it is about the story of an immigrant from China trying to trying to make it, but hidden in there is also not hidden, but but also in there is like a an Asian American narrative that a lot of us are are definitely more familiar with, which is the narrative of generational trauma and communication issues between um, parents and children. And I thought it was a lot of fun to read about this story through the lens of someone like Shelley, who is like the reader in a way where it's like, you guys just need to talk to each other. Why don't you just talk to each other and everything will be solved? But you can't because you're Chinese 
and this is a Chinese groove. I mean, I think it's also present in a lot of British literature as well, because <laughs> I've read a lot of British novels where I'm like, why are you guys so emotionally bottled up? You just have to be in the same room and talk to each right, other. <laughs> right. Remains of the day, the butler and his father, they can't speak to each other. Um, families are so um, complicated. And it's I always been very ironic to me that I think one of the units in which it's hardest to communicate is the family. It feels like that's a place where communication should be simpler, not more complicated, but there's so many um, conflicting emotions within a family that it makes communication hard. And Shelley comes to America and finds that his American relatives are in really bad shape. They have experienced a terrible trauma due to gun violence. And they don't know how to talk to each other anymore. And Shelley himself is at some conflict, in some conflict with his own father. Um, he and his father are still trying to recover from the loss of Shelley's mother. And they don't really speak about it uh, in, a, in a healing way anymore. I mean, the father is constantly grieving it and lives it day to day. but they haven't successfully found a way to process the grief. So one of the things the book looks at is how we live through grief and uh, how we talk to one another. When there's a painful past, it makes it even more difficult for some families to talk with each other and and process it. And I think, I mean, I, I love novels that operate at many different emotional levels. Um, and I, this book is is a humorous book and it's a somewhat satirical book, but I think there's a real, at its core, it's a very sad book too. I mean, there's a real, there's a real tussle in the book, a real struggle uh, amongst these people to try to learn to live with their grief. And that made the book interesting to me to write. I also, um, I'm kind of a, easy sell when it comes to a really complicated plot. I mean, I love complicated plots. <laughs> I, maybe it's all that, all the movies I watched or something, all the plays I've been to. I love going to the live theater and plays are so tightly plotted. You know, it's so compressed. It all has to happen in two hours or 90 minutes. And um, I, I, I launched a lot of different airplanes in this book that are all up in the air at the same time in plots and subplots. And then, you know, from a craft point of view, my job was to try to let these planes fly around in different directions and then bring them all safely home to land at the same time. Yeah. yeah it kind of reminded me of, uh, what is it like the, like spinning all the plates on like a bunch <laughs> of different sticks and it's like, Oh, like, well, like, will she be able to juggle all these subplots? I don't know, but let's find out. Let's find out. Is Shelly <laughs> going to drop one of those plates? It's true. It's true. that I had that exactly that image in my head that Shelly's running from pole to pole and spinning the plates. After I finished the book, um, and I was trying to, you know, think of how to describe it to other people, I realized that may maybe it took something from that famous um play The Servant of Two Masters, uh, which has also been made into a wonderful movie. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's comic, it's 
madcap and there's a servant who accidentally gets himself into a situation where he's taking directions from all sorts of people and running, you know, from pillar to post. And that happens to Shelley. I mean, in order to survive, he has to take all these different, anybody who will pay him a little bit of money, you know, he's got to take all these different jobs. And plus he's a student and he's running around and he's trying to, as you say, keep the plate spinning. Yeah, there's so much that happens in this book. Uh, we didn't, we haven't even talked about the the um, romance side plot or the birthing hotel side plot. Uh, there's, and, you know, personally, I feel like that play landed. I really enjoyed reading the book from front to finish. And I think I think he did a really good job, you know, bringing all the plates, I guess. Uh, I'm losing the metaphor. Safely down. Safely down onto the table um, for dinner. Oh, yeah. Shelly loves to eat, man. You're not going to write a book about a Chinese, a young Chinese man who's 18 years old without putting a lot of food in. I I mean, growing age. Yeah. And something that I really did love about going back to his character is the fact that, like, he's doing all these things. He's bringing families together. He's, like, resolving things here and there, coming up with ideas for a startup. But core to all of these actions is he just wants a place to stay. He just wants a place to sleep and eat and be able to live. Yeah, he's looking for home. He thinks, oh, I'm going to find a better family to join. <laughs> um, he thinks there's a better family out there because his own family, the extended family in, in Yunnan is so cruel to him. Um, and, you know, part of his journey is trying to decide what is what is family and is there such a thing as finding a better family, you know, did letting go of your your past and, and and striking out for something new. Is there a peach blossom land out there waiting for me? I, I just, I love what you said that, that Shelley reminds you of Wayman and, and um, everything everywhere. Is there a more wonderful character than Wayman? I just actually just bought a whole packet of googly eyes. I've been <laughs> sticking them on books around my, around my study. They're looking out at me uh, because I just, <laughs> I love that character so much. Yeah. We need moments of joy. We need moments of joy, but but joy that's joy that's experienced with our eyes wide open, right? Not joy that's that's um, shallowly expressed, but joy that's hard won. Um, I mean, the the quality of joy that makes it so uh, valuable to us is that it doesn't come along all that easily, and that it's brief. Right. It, joy is a is a burst of feeling that you have. And I hope that people will, when they pick up the Chinese groove, that they will spend some time with these characters and feel that burst of joy. Yeah. Well, I definitely did while I was reading the book. Um, we are winding down to the end of this interview, uh, but I did want to ask one last question. Uh, this book is set in 2015, and I feel like that had that plays a big role in how optimistic it is because I feel like we are living in the darkest timeline, especially the last couple of weeks. It's been rough for Asian Americans. Uh, what made you decide to set the book in 2015 instead of, um, you know, current day or even back to like the 90s or 80s? That was a difficult question for me as I uh, worked on the book. I wanted to bring it close to present day. Uh, I wanted that freshness, just as I chose 
not to make it a retrospective narrator at the end of Shelley's life, right? But to make him not that much older than Shelley was when he experienced these things. I wanted that immediacy. But it took me a number of years to write the book. And uh, and in the later years, as I was working on it, we were going through a very different political situation than when earlier. So yes, I decided to set it before our 2016 presidential election and all of the very different kind of political feeling that followed. Uh, I I don't think um, that we are, uh, I, I, I think that the book still speaks to our, to our current situation, but as a novelist and a novelist working in a fairly realistic vein, I didn't want to have the reader distracted by Shelley having to comment on the politics of the time if I said it, you know, uh, after the 2016 election. And there's a whole political subplot in the book. um, And that needed to, I felt, take place uh, a a few years, a few years earlier. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us on Books and Bulba. Um, The book is The Chinese Groove, available at booksellers everywhere. So you should definitely check it out. Um, What's next for you, Catherine? Are you working on any new books? I'm working on the next novel. Um, um, It's pretty, uh, it's just green shoots at this point. It's not very far along, but there's there's a scene in the Chinese group where Shelley has a long imaginary conversation with the silkworm. And I'm like, yeah, I want that silkworm to show up and help me out because the silkworm (laughs) helps Shelley solve a big problem. And I'm like, yeah, I need that silkworm to show up and help me with this next novel. Uh, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for the thoughtful read. Both of you, you really you really read the book uh, with great sensitivity, and I appreciate it. Thanks so much. And that was Catherine Ma, the author of The Chinese Groove, which is, again, available now at booksellers everywhere. Um, you can also pick it up at our Books and Boba bookshop, where, as always, your purchases will support not only your local bookstores, but us at Books and Boba as well. And as a reminder, our March 2023 book club pick is Front Desk by Kelly Yang. Um, We're excited to be reading this book that we've heard a lot about and that's been in the center of a lot of the book banning conversation um, going on around the nation. So, um, yeah, this will be our first middle grade novel, but we're excited to read uh, such an important and celebrated story. So looking forward to discussing that with Yurira and the rest of our members at the end of the month. Um, as always, if you've already finished reading the book, um, let us know your thoughts on our Goodreads forums. We always love to include the feedback from our members in our monthly discussion episodes. So um, yeah, looking forward to hearing your thoughts. And on that note, that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you all next time. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American-hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. 
Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Bill Yu, and you may know me from a blog called Angry Asian Man. And I'm Jeff Yang, author, journalist, and celebrity dad. We host a podcast called They Call Us Bruce, an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. Each week or so, we host a discussion about some of the most vital and interesting topics in our pop culture and our community, bringing in guests who are shaping and informing this thing called Asian America from Hollywood to D.C. and beyond. Uh, we got media, entertainment, food, family, politics, representation, the good, the bad, the WTF of it all. So check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at theycallsbruce.com. Peace. Peace.